he has promised us that we can expect on persecution. Indeed, the Apostle Paul makes a statement in Timothy. He says, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. And so as we've been working our way through Matthew chapter 10, we've encountered some very, very troubling things. The reality that we have no sanctity, no, no safety provided, no, no safety promised to us. We can expect persecution from governments, we can expect persecution from society, we can per- expect persecution even from our own families. And that hasn't set well with some of us. It's put a lot of tension on us as we worked our way through Matthew chapter 10. And so I'm going to read all of Matthew chapter 10 so that you can see one more time just exactly what Jesus is saying to us. We're going to be focusing on verses 26, uh, verses 36 to 46 this morning. But I'm going to read Matthew chapter 10, the whole chapter, so that you can see at the very end of the chapter comes a passage that we're going to be preaching on next week, which I think many of us in this room are dying to hear. The promise of reward. We've heard, talked a lot about persecution, we've talked a lot about preaching, we've talked a lot about the need to evangelize, and it's sort of like Jesus, as he's trying to disciple us to be like him, he's twisted the screws and we said, ouch, that hurts, that's enough, and he said, a little more, and he kept twisting, and we're wondering, is there an end in sight? And there is an end in sight. That's going to come next week. But we've been focusing on Matthew chapter 10 because we really need to be confronted. Some of us in this room, our, our Christianity, and not just us in this room, but lots of Christians in North America, it's kind of like a drive through fast food type of Christianity. We want it convenient, we want it cheap, and we want it tasty. Whether or not it's healthy, that's not the most important thing to us, and whether or not it's exactly what the great physician has pres- prescribed for us. That's not the most important thing either. And so as we look at Christ's teaching to his disciples here in Matthew chapter 10, you understand he's calling us into something that is not convenient, it is not cheap, and sometimes it's not even all that tasty. But it is healthy. It is like Christ. And that's what we really need to come to terms with. Jesus is not calling us into a fast food, convenient, cheap, drive-through form of Christianity. This is going to take some doing. It's going to take some pressure, and it's going to take some heat in order for us to be conformed into the image of Christ. So we're going to read chapter 10 to be reminded of the pressure and the heat that he promises us. And we're going to read all the way to the end of chapter 10, where we can also just get a little bit of the glimpse of reward that's promised. I'm not going to talk about reward today. That's next Sunday. So if you have felt the screws have been twisted, be here next week to find out what you have waiting in store. Just so you know, the rewards passage is not today. So if some of you have been feeling like the, the pressure has been put upon you and you're looking for that relief, it, it's not coming today. So just want you to know that. All right, Matthew chapter 10. You've been, you've been fairly forewarned. Here we go, chapter 10. And I didn't put this into proclaim this morning. I just put the main verses in. So if you have your Bible, you will need to turn with me in your Bibles to be able to follow along. Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 to the very end of the chapter. He called to him his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, 
Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Cananean, also known as Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Doesn't sound like your average drive through restaurant. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And you can see here in verse 18, he starts to expand the scope of their mission. At first he says, don't go anywhere where the Gentiles are, but here he's saying, a day is coming where you will be dragged before them. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated, hated by all, for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house, Beelzebub or Satan, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, say it in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim it from the housetops, and don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. 
Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But everyone who denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father in heaven. Don't think that I've come to bring peace on the earth. I haven't come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy worthy of me. And whoever loses his life, I'm sorry, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. One who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones a cup of cold water because he is a disciple truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So there is the promise of reward coming next week. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for speaking to us through your son. We thank you, Lord, for sending him to this earth and living a life which every single one of us in this room are called to imitate to the fullest measure possible and that we, Lord, are to be devoted and disciplined to that task of being as like Jesus as we possibly can. Oh, Father, we understand that you have said at many points in your word that the more we are like you, the more this world will hate us. Father, that pressure is not desired by us. That persecution is not something that we would seek. And Father, we, we would like it to be easy. We'd like an easy button when it comes to knowing you. Father, I pray that as we look at your word this morning that we would understand that the path to knowing you, to understanding you, to walking with you, is not an easy path. It's a path that calls us to take up our cross daily, to endure 
the death penalty from this world if necessary. That we might have the reward of you forever. Lord, sometimes I, I am personally tempted to take the easy way out. I, I believe there are many here in this room today who also seek the easy path. God, I pray, Lord, that you would show us that in forsaking the hard path, we cheat ourselves out of something beautiful that you would have us to pursue. I pray, Lord, that you'd show it to us and that we, Lord, would pursue it. We need you to help us to do that. So would you please open our minds to understand, send your spirit to shine light upon the text that we, Lord, would grasp it in its fullness, that we would believe it. Help us to believe it and help us to obey. We love you and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. At an undisclosed location somewhere off of South Africa, somewhere in the uh, ocean off the coast of South Africa, at an undisclosed location, there is a ship. goes by the name Peace of Africa. It's owned by the De Vere Diamond Company, and this ship is one of the mighty ships. If you've ever watched that uh, television program on Discovery Channel, they have this series called Mighty Ships. This is one of those mighty ships. It's a feat of technological and engineering. It's a marvel to behold. It's as large, it's an, in fact, it's a converted uh, oil tanker. It's been converted over for this very specific purpose. It has on the front of the ship a giant crawler, a boom that is lowered into the ocean by means of a crane, down 200, 300 feet. And this crawler will mosey around on the bottom of the ocean floor with a giant suction tube on the front of it. And it is sucking up all of the silt, all of the loose gravel, all that stuff on the bottom of the ocean floor. You see, on the bottom of the ocean floor, off of the coast of Africa, at a depth of 300, 400 feet, there are these little pockets called diamond vents, where the ocean's surface, sort of the, the surface of the earth, the, the molten, the magma, the undersurface, it, it sort of has these outlets where it pumps up magma and molten lava onto the ocean floor, and out of these vents come diamonds. And they swirl around in the ocean currents, and so there's literally thousands upon thousands of very, very valuable diamonds just sitting on the bottom of the ocean floor. And so this ship, Peace of Africa, lowers into the ocean this giant boom which sucks up all of the silt, all of the pebbles, all of the rocks, all of it comes up off of the ocean floor and it goes through a very advanced six-stage process whereby diamonds are sorted from all the rubble. Diamonds have some very interesting properties that uh, can be utilized in order to pick them apart from all the other garbage that's out there. Number one, they're very, very hard. Diamonds are the hardest thing on the face of the earth. There's nothing harder, in fact, than a diamond. It's the hardest thing we've got. And so the first process in the filtering process is it goes through a crushing. It's like a giant dryer drum. It's like a giant drum that spins just like a dryer. And they've got these enormous steel like balls, ball bearings, giant, heavy, really heavy balls that spin around in this thing. And they pump all of this sludge and all of this dirt and debris into this giant drum and then just spin it around. And these giant ball bearings basically just slam all over the place, breaking everything up into really fine powder. 
Guess what doesn't break in that process? The diamond. And despite how violent the force is that's going on inside of this drum, even though it will crush and destroy every other sediment, every other type of mineral, every other type of gemstone that's out there, it will not crush a diamond. This powder is then funneled onto a silk screen where it is pressure washed and everything that's too small to be a diamond falls through the pressure screen. And so diamonds are going to be a little bit larger than the average sediment, the average deposit. All this other stuff is like powder. And so it goes on, on the screening process where these high-powered water jets pressurized, spray water on this, this silt that's been broken up, and everything that's not diamonds falls through. The third thing in the process is it goes through a concentration process. Uh, diamonds are not only very, very hard, they're very, very heavy. They're dense, okay? They're dense. And so they're heavier than the material that surrounds them. And so after it goes through this crushing process and after it goes through this screening process, it'll go through a concentration process where it's going to be mixed with a solution of ferrosilicon. Some of you are like, what's that? It's a mixture of iron and sand. This is where it gets really complicated. I'm not going to get into all the details. The long and the short of it is, is it's mixed with a very specialized solution that will have roughly the same density as a diamond. And this solution, all of this ground pebble, all of this stuff that didn't fit through the, through the screen as it was sifted, will then go into this ferrosilicone solution and spun in a centrifuge. So that centrifugal force, that is using the property of weight, will pull all of the lighter stuff to the top of the centrifuge where it will then be siphoned off and only those elements that have the hardness or the density of a diamond will stay at the bottom. And so there's a certain percentage of ferrosilicon, which they mix up to be very, very heavy, almost as heavy as a diamond, but nothing's as heavy as a diamond. So they make it to be very, very heavy. And so all this other stuff gets siphoned off the top, whereas the diamonds will stay in the bottom of the centrifuge. This solution is then poured onto what is known as a grease trap. Another interesting property about diamonds. They agree with grease, and they disagree with water. You heard the expression, water and oil just don't mix. Well, interestingly enough, diamonds, they don't uh, mix with water either. If you pour water onto a diamond, it'll run right off. Ladies, you might want to try this today with your engagement rings. This is something that I didn't know until this last week either. If you pour oil on your diamond, you'll know it doesn't run off that easily, so I don't, don't advise you try that. Diamonds and oil mix, whereas diamonds and water do not. So the last process, one, almost to the end, one of the last stages of filtering diamonds from all the other garbage that's out there is they run it across a grease trap, where the ferrosilicon will wash off with water, but the diamonds will stick to the grease trap. So that's how they separate it from the ferrosilicon solution. Now, at this point in the process, you have really, really hard items that have some degree of attraction to oil, and so you've got almost 100% nothing but diamonds at this point, but there are still those random odd little bits and pieces that are stuck in the oil that might still not be diamonds. And you wouldn't know it just to look at them. An unrefined, unprocessed, uncut diamond 
still looks like a rock, just like a random piece of pebble. So the last part of the process is all of this stuff is then put into a giant x-ray machine. You see, diamonds, because of their nature, even though on the outside they may still look like a rock uncut, on the inside they're prismed. They will still refract and reflect light. And so if you put all this stuff into an x-ray machine, you zap it with an x-ray, on the x-ray machine, the diamonds will shine, whereas the other gemstones will not. So using that process, you can pick out just the random bits and pieces. And by that point in time, you have 100% diamonds. Now, why do I begin with this analogy? Diamonds are very unique, very amazing gemstones. Most beautiful gemstone there is. That's why when we buy engagement rings for our girlfriends, when we, or when we just want to buy a nice diamond ring for our wives on Christmas or their birthday, gemstones are nice, rubies are good, emeralds are fancy, but diamonds, diamonds that's what everybody wants because they're beautiful. To sort a diamond, all you have to do is assess its characteristics. Now, as we come to this text this morning, Jesus has his own process of sorting. He has his own process of picking apart the genuine article from stuff that just looks like a Christian. And it begins specifically in verse 32. Now before we get there, I need you to understand something. The major thrust of chapter 10 is that we would go through a process of refinement where we would become the people Christ has died to make us. And that process is a process of heat and pressure. Well, how do you think a diamond is made? Heat and pressure. So you need to understand what Jesus is calling us into here is something spectacular. Whether or not we're in the process of becoming what he has died to make us, can be understood just by assessing the properties of you and I in this room. And here's the first property. Verse 32, Jesus makes the statement, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is saying that there's going to be a process of separation. There's a process where certain people are going to get in, and there's a process where certain people are going to be rejected, just like all the other slurry that gets sucked up off of the ocean floor into a piece of Africa. Only the diamonds are kept. Everything else is pumped overboard. Everything else is rejected. Jesus is saying here, I'm going to keep certain ones, and other certain ones I'm going to reject 
what is the critical distinction? The critical distinction is this, whomever acknowledges me, as the ESV translates this word, whomever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. Let's look a little bit more closely. This Greek word here, in the Greek, is homo logeo. Now, some of you have read this word. Some of your translations might say confess. It's rendered elsewhere in the ESV translation as confess. But if you just look at the basic parts of this word, if you just sort of dissect this word, you'll get a very clear understanding of what the word means. First part of the word, the prefix, is homo. Homogenous, homosexual. This prefix, homo, literally means two of the same. In other words, they're the same. They agree. The second part of the word, logeo, is just a basic verb, to speak. So what this word means at its root is literally to speak the same as. So what Jesus is saying here is, whomever speaks the same before men as Jesus, he will agree and acknowledge him before the Father. If you embrace Christ, he will embrace you. But at its root, what is being mentioned here is the need to agree with Jesus. And so if that's what the first part of it means, then obviously the second part of it you can understand is the antithesis of the first part. If the first part is everyone who acknowledges me before men, everybody who speaks the same as Christ before men, then the second part would be anybody who disagrees with Christ before men. Anybody who does not agree with Christ before men. So when we talk about this idea of acknowledgement, we're not necessarily just talking about some sort of basic intellectual academic understanding. I know that there was a man once upon a time named Jesus who lived in Jerusalem. Basic intellectual acknowledgement of a historical reality is not sufficient for our salvation. What Christ is calling for here is that we would agree with what he is saying, which means to disagree will result in his denying us before men as well. There are differences. There are degrees of difference. If I say to you that my goal is to go home. My destination at the end of today is to be in my house. Well, right now, I'm here in the gymnasium of Calvary Community Church. So at every point in which I get closer to my house, I come closer to being the same as my house. I grow closer to being in my lazy boy recliner. Now, I cannot say that I have the goal of being in my lazy boy recliner in my house, and simultaneously, I have the goal of being in the gym at Calvary Community Church. See, those two are mutually exclusive. You can't have both. It's one or the other. And so there's a division that happens. The closer I get to home, in terms of degrees, the closer I come to being the same as being at home, being at home. But for every point in which I am further and further from home, by degrees, I am different from home. 
Now, why do I really draw this out? Because this is the essence of what verses 32 and 33 are saying. If we decide to acknowledge Christ, to speak the same as Jesus, for that decision, there is an absolute division. In the same way that you divide diamonds from the rough, to decide to speak the same as Christ is to divide yourself from the rest of this world. It is a decision to be divided. You're saying, I'm not so sure. This is just semantics. Well, it is semantics. It's what the word of God is saying. This is the word of scripture. But look at the very next verse in case you're not sure that you see this. Verse 34, do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. You know, at Christmas time, when we celebrate the coming of Christ, we sing a song Goodwill, goodwill among men, peace on earth. We, we sing this. It's from Scripture. It's from Luke chapter 2. And while it's true that Jesus comes to bring peace, you understand there's a season for that, but the season for that comes first through a season of persecution and hardship. Jesus is saying there's a time for peace. There's a time for heaven. But for now, what he has actually done is he has unleashed violence upon the earth. That's literally what he's saying. Don't think I've come to bring peace. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. What do swords do? They cut, they divide, they hack you apart. The whole point of a sword is to kill you by separating your internal organs. That's the idea of the weapon. And in a very real sense, that's exactly what the very next verse says. If you look in verse 35, he says, I have, not, I have come to set a man against his father. Greek word there, dikadzo. Do you know what the word means? It's interesting that the ESV should render it set a man against his father. The word literally means to cut in two. Again, if you dissect the word, dikazo, die, on the front end, die, Greek word for two, and then kazo, to cut. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, I have come to bring a sword on the earth. My purpose is to cut you against your father, against your family, which is completely synonymous with what he said earlier in the chapter, which he said a man's enemies will be those of his own household. In case you missed it, he says it again, not once in the chapter, but twice. He goes on to say, I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Verse 36, a person's enemies will be those of his own household. In all this world, the tightest fabric is the fabric of family. There's nothing so thick as blood, an expression I'm sure you've heard, Indeed, all of society is built upon the sanctity of the family, for this is the Father's original design in creating this world. We're intended to have close, tight relationships within our families. Our children are supposed to be the dearest, most precious things in the world to us. The love that we have for our spouse is to be the greatest love. Jesus is saying that his purpose in calling us to acknowledge him from men is to create an absolute division between us and everything else in this world. Even the most precious 
of relationship. Those are tough words. Jesus dividing us against our families. Jesus dividing us against our spouses. Our children hating us and wanting us to be executed. You begin to see as you look at this text that when we talk about following Christ, when we talk about being Christians, maybe our understanding of what that walk looks like needs to be readjusted. It's not so much I just go to church, I listen to the guy talk for 30 to 65 to 75 minutes. It's not just what I do on Sunday. It's not just I go, I listen, I sing a few songs, we pray, say amen, and I go back about the rest of the week. You see, that kind of Christianity is a drive-through. That kind of Christianity is a fast-food approach. And that is not Christ's purpose here. His purpose here is to do some hard cutting in our lives and in our souls so that we would be divided and separated out from the rest of the world. His purpose here is that we would acknowledge him before men, and in acknowledging him before men, we would be separated from the world. We're called to be divided. Now, how does that work? How does the division work? The division works, church, by promoting division. Here's the third thing. Number one, you're called to agree with Jesus. Number two, you need to understand that agreeing with Jesus is going to result in you being divided from the world. And number three, you're part of the process of division. You are called to promote division. This is where we get to the what do I do part of the sermon. Jesus as your Lord and King is saying your job is to promote division from the world. Say, whoa, I'm looking at this text, I don't see that anywhere. Walk with me for a second. What does verse 34, verses 35 and 36, it forms the tail end of the segment. It says, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother. But notice what it begins with, for. What does the word for mean? It means that this is a concluding purpose statement to whatever has come before it. What's the for? Therefore. To tie it back to the previous verse, the previous section. So we work our way backwards. He says, don't think I've come. That's not why I've come. You look at the verse before that, and again, he says, you have to acknowledge me before men. But look at that verse, verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge. What is the so there for? Well, the so also connects it back to the previous verse. Hang with me. We're going places. So we look back at the previous verse. What is that? Verse 31. Fear not. Therefore. Well, what's the therefore, therefore? It's a connection back to the previous verse. So we work our way back. What do we find? Verse 28. And do not fear those who kill body but cannot kill the soul. Well, the problem is that verse starts off with a chi. And. Well, that's a conjunction. What does that mean? It means whatever is being said in that verse is conjoined to the verse before it. Which means we continue to work our way back. And guess what? We land at verse 26. The main verb of the whole passage. He makes a statement, have no fear of them. This idea of fear runs throughout the passage. He says, have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Verse 27, here's the main verb. Here's the command. And both of these are in the imperative, the active imperative. He makes a statement, what I tell you in the dark, say 
in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the rooftops. What I tell you in the dark, say. Ipon, it's in the imperative, ipate. You notice that next verse, the next part of that verse, what you hear whispered, proclaim. You know what that word really is? Preach. Caruso. Again, in the imperative, keruxate. It's not a suggestion, it's a command. Jesus is saying to his disciples, preach. Preach. Proclaim it. How? From the rooftops. What if it's something that I heard in the privacy of my room as I was just reading the Bible on my own? Say it in the light. What you hear from the Word, you're to preach it. Now that's the main verb. That's what Jesus is saying. And then he goes on to say, don't be afraid. You're going to be cut. You're going to be divided. People in your own house are going to hate you. Your own children may want to have you put to death. Well, how does that happen? It started back in verse 26 where he said, preach. In other words, we're not going to be persecuted. We're not going to have our children hating us. We're not going to endure the sword if we don't start with verse 26 where the actual command is to preach. Now, you guys know I love diagramming and dissecting and picking this thing apart. And you, and you know some weeks, most weeks in fact, we'll just take one verse at a time, maybe two verses. This is 10 verses here, 26 to 36. You know that's a stretch for me. It's already 10 after. That ought to give you some idea of how much of a stretch that is. I'm trying to cover a lot of ground. And, and this is really what I want you to understand. The reason I'm taking such a big chunk of text here is because from a linguistic perspective, from a diagrammatical perspective, as you're trying to divide and dissect this thing up into neat passages, guess what? From verses 26 all the way down to verse 39, there's really no easy division. It's one giant paragraph in the text. In fact, all of it goes together. There are littered throughout the whole text these so's and ands and therefores. He's tying it all together. Jesus is speaking to us and he's not giving us the, from a preacher's perspective, easy little snippet sound bites, you know, that I can just work on on a week-to-week -week basis. He's giving us a giant chunk. He's giving us a giant chunk. So what I need you to see clearly today is we're looking at Christ and what he's saying in the Bible. He is telling you that you're going to be cut, that that's a part of the process of acknowledging him before men. That's a part of the 
walk that we're called to. And that the way that any of this ever begins for any of us is if we will begin to proclaim Christ to men. Can you boil it down for me, Josh, into a snippet? I try every week. That's literally what the sermon titles are for for me. I try to condense it into like two or three words. I had probably like ten different variations of sermon titles this week. What I ultimately settled upon was division through preaching. It started off with this convoluted thing. Solidarity, separation, and sorting through preaching. That wouldn't fit in the bulletin, so I didn't go with it. If I could just sum it up for you in a nutshell. You're to be divided from the world. For the sake of the world. Through the process preaching to the world. We live in a country that takes the words of St. Francis of Assisi and elevates them to a place that flat out contradicts what Jesus is saying in this passage. For those of you who do not know, St. Francis of Assisi is famous for saying, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. There are t-shirts that are emblazoned with it. There are coffee mugs that have it plastered on the side of it. People smack this thing on their bumper stickers. And what it basically is, is it's a means whereby we justify to ourselves the need to live Christian lives, virtuous in every way, save one. The virtue Christ is calling for us to have here is to preach. A better statement Preach at all times. Use words at all times. And live a righteous life at all times. That's what Christ is calling us to in this text. Say, but if I do that, then my family will hate me. Yep. If I tell my employer that he needs to go to church, that he needs to repent of his sins and trust in Jesus. My employer may not like me. In fact, my employer might fire me. Yep. If I take a stand in my neighborhood and tell my neighbors about Jesus, the same as Jesus would, then my neighbors might vandalize my house. Yep. All of those things are promised. Indeed, as we saw last week, you might ask yourself whether or not you're really following Christ if you don't experience some degree of persecution. That's what makes these last two points so precious. And again, they're at odds with each other. Look with me. Verse 28. Don't be afraid. He says it again. Verse 31. Don't be afraid says it three times between verses 26 and 31. 
Look at verse 28. He says, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Christ's reminder to us in the midst of promising us that this life will be wrecked by following him is that there is life beyond this life. And that's an amazing promise. His reminder is, when you look at this life versus the life to come, be more concerned about offending the one who presides over the life to come than the people who for a season hold sway over this life. He says, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. In other words, yeah, it's, I can understand. You like your body. There are things worse in life than dying. He says, rather, fear him who could destroy both soul and body in hell. There are more beautiful things coming. And those things should be the things that motivate us. Not the things we can see, but the things that the Father has promised us. If you do not preach out of a fear of men, then you are fearing men when you rightfully should be more concerned about fearing God. You are in love with the world you can see when you should be rightfully more in love with the world you can't see. So you say, okay, so I'm going to preach this because I love the world that's coming more than the world I can see. I just am afraid that my life will be cut short. I'm afraid that it'll end before I'm ready. I'm afraid that it'll be over before my time. That's the next reassurance there. He says, are not, verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? The cheapest bird there is. I wouldn't even pay a penny for a sparrow, just to be straight with you. We got these crows in my neighborhood. They annoy me. I would be happy to have no crows. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny in ancient Jerusalem, first century Jerusalem? Again, meat is a hard thing to come by. They would eat, they would eat sparrows. They're the cheapest of all types of meat substance. It's not like eating lamb or having having beef or anything like that, you know. If, if you and I were to resort to eating sparrows, you know we'd fall in on hard times, you know. I, I really would not, I, I don't know that I could ever eat sparrow. I've been told, anyway, the flavor apparently isn't all that great either, but they're cheap for that reason. So if you're poor and you live in first century Jerusalem where meat is hard to come by, you can get a sparrow, two in fact, according to Christ, for about a penny. And he makes a statement, these are the cheapest, most least desired of all possible creatures. I mean, you know, they go for next to nothing. He says, those cheap birds that nobody wants, that don't even taste that good, you can get two of them for a penny. When they die, God is there. He sees it, and he knows it, and they don't die apart from his loving, watchful gaze. Now, put me up aside, alongside a sparrow. 
my hope is that you would find more value in me than a sparrow. Don't necessarily know that for a fact, but, you know, that's my hope. That's the intention of Christ in this verse. Sparrows, when they die, cheap, disgusting, ugly birds that they are, God knows about it. And so, if you are to die, if you are to be martyred for your faith, he's going to know about it. He's going to watch it. He's going to be there observing it. He makes a statement, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Your God loves you so much that he died to save you, to free you from your sins. The scriptures here allude to the fact that he loves you so much that every single one of us in this room, he's counted the hairs on our head. He's numbered them. You're that beautiful to him. You're that precious to him. He is that invested in your life. He sees every tear you cry. He's numbered every hair you have. For some of us, he's counted longer than for others of us. But the reality is, is he knows every hair on our head. Which means that if in acknowledging Christ before the world, it leads to our death. We have the assurance from God that he will not spend our confession flippantly. He will not give away our witness casually. And he will not stand back and watch us die carelessly. In preaching to lost people, we are promised persecution. And the possibility is there that we will die for it. But the assurance is there that if it comes to that, if it comes to death, He will allow our death to take place in such a way as to have maximum benefit for his kingdom. Because we are so very dear and precious to him. Preach and be divided from the world. Not because we hate the world. But we divide ourselves from the world by preaching to the world for the sake of the world. Some of us, as we approach our walk with Christ, we're not going through that process of heat and pressure by which diamonds are made. Some of us, by refusing to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ over our lives in a passage like this, by refusing to go out and tell people about Jesus, some of us are denying Christ before men. Though we might be among the most faithful to come to church every week. The only person you're fooling if you're a regular attender to church, yet you are dead quiet in front of the world with regards to acknowledging Jesus. 
The only person you're fooling is yourself. And maybe some of us in this room. But you're not fooling Christ. And you're not taking advantage of the means that he's provided for you to become more like Jesus. In Daniel chapter 12, don't flip there, just listen. Daniel makes a statement. He says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, a reference to the stars. Those who turn many to righteousness shall shine like the stars forever and ever. You think the diamond on your wife's ring is beautiful. Christ's promise here in Daniel is that he wants to turn us into something that shines far brighter than a diamond. He wants us to shine like the stars above. All of Kamloops is perishing. They're living lives of death and ultimately they will die and spend an eternity in hell without knowing Jesus, without having met the most beautiful, most amazing person ever. We're called to be different than them in that we preach to them the truth of Christ so that they could become as we are. The only way that we do that is if we preach to them. Or, to put it differently, to use the expression from Daniel, is if we shine before them. As shine, we must, according to Christ. As shine, so we shall if he would help us and we would be obedient. Let's bow for a word of prayer.